want to reflect on a, a question. Um, it may seem a bit disconnected, actually, from the Bible reading, but we will get there. But have you ever wondered why we feel shame, why we feel guilt, why we feel pride? You know, we all experience these things, don't we? And sometimes we wished we didn't. I don't know about you, but there's times where I really wished I didn't feel guilty. Uh, there are times when I really wished I didn't feel ashamed. It's part of being human, isn't it? It's something, even when we come to Christ, we become Christian, these are part of our normal, everyday life. We experience these emotions. Have you ever asked the question, why do they exist? Why are they part of our experience? What role, what function do they serve? You know, we experience them, but sometimes we don't stop and reflect on them and say, what good are they? We sometimes might actually think they're no real good at all, especially when we're feeling them. You know, are these often bad feelings? And we often even say pride is a bad feeling too. But is all they're there for just to make us feel bad? Sometimes we may think that, sometimes we may feel that. Or are they there for a constructive purpose? Tonight I want to focus particularly on shame and guilt and I'm going to put pride aside. But let me just throw it out there for you to think of during the week. Pride is actually good. Reflect on that and discuss it with Pastor Dex next week. Um, now, let me say we have to be careful in the way we talk and think about things here. Because too often when we talk about lots of stuff, actually, including uh, our own emotions and ourselves, but even our theology, we, we, we lump lots of things together and we tangle them all up and, and make them sort of all part of one big mess. And I want to try and actually tease a few things apart because it's really helpful to think about the difference between cause and effect. Now, those of you who are physicists will like this. Those of you who are not, bear with me, all right? Okay, so just because guilt and shame are, are, are connected with when we or someone else does something wrong, it doesn't mean they're wrong themselves. Does that make sense? But often we think that guilt and shame is wrong because it's associated with wrongdoing. Why did God even provide us with these emotions? Have you ever asked that question? You know, if God created humanity, and I hope we all sort of subscribe to that basic understanding, if God created us as we are, even though we are fallen, we live in a fallen world and we're not yet fully redeemed as we will be in eternity, we can assume that shame and guilt serve a purpose. The short answer is they're there for our benefit. We feel guilt if we do something wrong. Okay, We break a rule, break a law. We break a standard. Now, Westerners are really good at understanding guilt because Western society is a very guilt-orientated society. I don't know if you sort of figured that one out, but we're all about rules and do what is right, don't do what is wrong. So if we cross a line, we do something wrong, we feel 
guilty, hopefully. The thing is we can actually squash our guilt. Have you noticed that yourself? You can actually feel guilty and then sort of try and convince yourself maybe it wasn't so bad or try and ignore it and eventually it goes away and so on. But actually having guilt for when we do something wrong is useful because it warns us we've crossed a line. And, you know, sometimes crossing lines is a bad thing. Now, not all rules are necessarily sane. Like there's this wonderful rule. Have you ever done these internet searches for strange laws? Like there was this... I I, I do things like this. And um, (laughs) I can remember searching and finding that in England, if you drive a taxi cab, you can be fined if you don't have a bale of hay in the boot. Yeah. Because they've never repealed the law that said you had to carry a bale of hay because taxis were originally pulled by horses. I mean, stupid rule, hey. So you wouldn't want to feel guilty for doing that, all right? So there's a thing called, you know, there's, there's appropriate guilt and inappropriate guilt. Sometimes rules are really stupid. And, you know, feeling guilty about not carrying a bale of hay, I wouldn't worry about it. But other times we actually feel guilt when we don't need to. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but sometimes we can carry guilt as a weight with ourselves. And we can feel guilty about something we've done long after it's been dealt with. You ever experienced that? You know, you do something really bad and often this is tied up with shame and we'll come to shame a bit later and you can feel really ashamed and guilty and carry it around with you and it actually weighs you down. Not all guilt is good. Not all guilt is appropriate. Sometimes it is. So if we get stuck in feelings of guilt, that's unhealthy. But if we listen to that emotion and we act on it to stop doing the wrong we shouldn't be doing, then that's great. Okay, if we want to use religious terminology, and okay, we can do that sometimes, we could say you stop sinning. But essentially, if you translate the meaning for sin, it, it's one of, the under, one of the words used is missing the mark, you know, not hitting the target or making an error. You know, that sense of where guilt is actually quite appropriate. So that's there to warn us we've crossed a line we shouldn't cross, stop, step back. But, like I said, we can get stuck or feel guilt inappropriately. So not all guilt is good, but not all guilt is bad. Shame, similarly. Now, Westerners aren't so good at shame. I don't know if you've noticed that one. Easterners are much better at shame um, because Westerners aren't that good at relationships and shame is a relational emotion. The difference between guilt and shame is you feel ashamed with respect to someone. And you don't have to be taught that. I don't know how many of you are parents here. There's a few I know. Um, But if you've ever seen a little kid do something wrong, what's one of their automatic reactions? They can't hide. Have you ever seen a little kid do that? 
They turn and hide their face. I can remember my, my little girl, she actually used to do it. She used to bury her face in the cushions on the lounge when she was embarrassed. You know? But the natural reaction is to hide when you do something wrong because you can't look someone in the eye. You know, one of the ways of talking about shame is your eyes are lowered. You ever know, have you ever heard that sort of phraseology? Shame is a relational idea. And shame means you've broken a relationship. And, you know, again, usually it means because you've crossed a line of some sort. Now, it doesn't have to be a law or a rule, does it? You can do something to someone that's not breaking any rules, but it upsets them or offends them. How many of you have ever, ever, you know, maybe you're not like me and maybe you're really good at everything you say is so appropriate, but how many of you have ever said something that you thought was really funny and you launch that plane and it goes, and it lands like a lead balloon and you think, I've just really not just embarrassed myself, but I've offended the other person. You ever done anything like that? You know, um, I have this horrible temptation at funerals to want to tell jokes to lighten the mood, you know. Um, I, I, I resist that temptation usually, all right. But, you know, how you can do things that just is not necessarily wrong according to any rules, but offends people. And it causes that break in the relationship and you feel shame. And shame can be really useful. Because it alerts you to the relationship being damaged. You know, a friend, family member, co-worker, schoolmate, university colleague, whatever it is. You know, you don't feel shame if you don't know the person or you don't care. Does that make sense? You know, because you, you're not break, there's no relationship to break. So shame only exists if there's a relationship to break. So shame is really useful too because like guilt warns us we've crossed a line with breaking a rule. Shame warns us we've done something to damage a relationship. And so we need to listen to that and pay attention to it. Now, of course, shame, like guilt, can be inappropriate. Have, have you ever experienced coming to someone to apologise for something you thought was really, really bad and they go, I didn't even notice. I've done that. Yeah, I've agonised for, I think it was months one time I can remember, and I was so ashamed to go and approach this, this lady who I thought I had been so abrupt and, and you know, unpleasant to, and I eventually actually got enough courage to go and apologise. And she goes, I don't even remember it. And I'm thinking... Well, I wasted a whole lot of emotional energy doing that, didn't I? You know, and we can do that. We can have huge burdens of emotion that actually are inappropriate. So not all shame and not all guilt is appropriate, but we don't want to dismiss it either. We want to listen to it appropriately. So when we do wrong, we can do a couple of things. We can listen to our emotions and try and repair a broken relationship. We can try and ignore it, hope it goes away. How often do you do that? You know, um, it's like sweeping the dirt under the carpet. You know, you've made a mess, but no one can see it. 
Or you just wait and hope everything settles down. You know how... You get, I don't know, maybe you guys have got more functional families than I'm aware of, but, um, you know, those families where the t- you, at one time you can cut the air like a knife, you know, and the way to solve the relational problem is to not say anything and wait for about six years and hopefully it smooth. well, maybe not six years, but, you know, and hopefully it smooths over. Whereas if we listened to the promptings of our emotions, as God has designed us, maybe we'd do something about it and repair it a lot more quickly. It's not easy because the bigger the muck-up, the stronger the emotions and the harder it is to do it. It's much easier to say sorry when it's only a little thing you've done wrong, isn't it? When you've really mucked up, it's really embarrassing to go and say, (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Can I grovel a bit more? You ever, ever felt like that? You've gone and said sorry and then you still want to grovel? Maybe it's only me, but, you know, um... It's one of the things we do. We sometimes feel we've got to earn. Now, here's the key word I want to get to now. Forgiveness. Because both guilt and shame are there to warn us when something has gone wrong so that we can sort it out. And the sorting of it out, often we in our society want to do something to get it make it right, you know, pay our dues to earn approval, to get back in someone's good books. You listen to the language you've got around, all this sort of stuff, and it's all about what you do to sort it out. But forgiveness is a very different concept. It's funny, we talk about forgiveness a lot in church. Have you noticed that? It's one of those words we throw around a lot. What is it? How do we actually forgive? And how do we think about forgiveness so it's actually a useful concept? I started with shame and guilt because forgiveness deals with shame and guilt. And unless we actually put it in that framework, we actually don't think about forgiveness constructively and well. So I'm going to look at this in two little portions. First of all, look at the big picture, particularly about sin, forgiveness and God. But then I'm going to ask some questions. Okay, what does this mean about us as human beings? Okay, and because I'm sort of splitting it in two, just to give you a heads up, we're going to stop partway through the sermon and have communion. All right, so don't freak out. Um, After communion, I'll be getting back up again. And yeah, all right, Get get the idea. So what does it mean when we say or when we read passages like we just read that God was in Christ reconciling the world with himself. What does it mean that we have the ministry of reconciliation? What does it mean that we are forgiven? Really big questions, actually, aren't they? And really important questions. One of the sad things is we often don't talk about this really well. I can remember from my early years as a Christian, a phrase being trotted out, which now I really think is very, very unhelpful. And that's the phrase, forgive and forget. Anyone heard that? Guess what? It's rubbish. Not to 
paint a, a too bleak a picture, but it really is unhelpful because let, let me posit something. If someone did a wrong to you, someone offended you, and then all of a sudden you had a car accident, you had brain damage and couldn't remember the wrong, do you still need to forgive that person? Can you even forgive that person? Actually, of course the answer is no. Why? Because you cannot remember the wrong that was done, therefore there is nothing to forgive. Objectively, there may be some guilt involved. The person may have done something wrong if there was a car accident, you know, blah, blah, blah. But you, with respect to the other person, there's nothing to forgive. To forgive, you need to have a wrong that is done that means something to you, that has an impact on you. So forgive and forgetting actually aren't connected. Forgiveness is actually connected with remembering. Because there's nothing to forgive if there's no wrong done. Do you get what I'm getting at here? And the more impact on you, the greater the need for forgiveness, obviously, isn't there? Has anyone here, seriously, had a lot of success with forgetting hurts? Let me be really honest, nah. And so what the biggest, deepest hurts are the hardest to forget. But I'm not asked to forget them. As a child of God, I'm not asked to forget wrongs. I'm asked to forgive them. So the two are very different things. And I think we don't help ourselves when we try and equate forgiveness and forgetting because I can't forget that easily. I'm not a computer. I can't delete the file that's got the memory in there. What I can do is choose to forgive the person who's done the wrong to me. Now, here that forgiveness is a choice. Often, again, we try and equate it with the way we feel. But I can choose to forgive someone and still not particularly like what they've done because what they may have done may have been actually quite wrong. And some of the hardest things I've found to forgive are the wrongs done to the people I love. And so I have to then keep coming back and revisiting those wrongs and choosing to forgive again. You know, the way I think about it is forgiveness is choosing not to hold that wrong against the person. Doesn't mean the wrong didn't exist. Doesn't mean the wrong wasn't done but it means I choose not to hold that wrong against the person. So now if we think theologically, what does it mean that God was in Christ offering forgiveness? It means not that we have not done wrong. It doesn't mean that God has forgotten all the wrongs we've done. It means he chooses not to hold those wrongs against us. He forgives us. 
And to me, that's one of the greatest gifts because we can feel so weighed down by what wrong we do. Don't know about you guys. I feel my imperfections. You know, I wish so often I was a better disciple than I am. I wish I was not as human as I am. I wished I hadn't learned some of the things I'd learned in my family that I still do that I wished I didn't. And I see my children doing it and I go, oh, they lived it off me too. But God still forgives. And one of the great pieces of news we have to offer is that in Christ, every sin for every person is forgiven. That was the radical difference that Jesus communicated. Because too often, people try and earn their standing with God. You know, God, I'll just be a little bit better. I'll just sort my life out a bit more before I come to you. Or God, I can't bear to face you. Let me just get myself sorted a bit. You know, if we're Christians and we've done something really bad, we almost feel like we may have to earn our way back into God's good books. Let me tell you, you don't. God's heart is towards all of humanity. And the forgiveness is available to all of humanity. Now, we haven't got to repentance. We'll get there in a minute, all right? But we underestimate sometimes what it means that God forgives. He does not hold what we do against us. You know, if you don't carry away anything else from tonight, God's heart is inclined towards you and he forgives you. Christ says he doesn't condemn. He forgives. That is a gift, not something we earn. And Paul echoes that very, very clearly. So how does repentance fit in? Well, this is another one of those things where we often mash forgiveness and repentance together. God's grace is vast, I would probably argue limitless, and that all sin is forgiven in the cross. Now, otherwise, we've got problems because there's someone's sin somewhere that hasn't been forgiven. Well, no, of course not. So all sin in the cross has been forgiven. But not all relationships have been restored. So this is where the guilt and the shame come back into it. You know, everyone's sin, the wrong they have done is forgiven. You know, our objective guilt is dealt with. But the shame, the, the break in the relationship is still there. You know, I don't know if you think about it. When you've done something wrong towards someone, you have offended them, actually need both people to restore the relationship, don't you? Because the person who's wronged, you know, you maybe think of someone you've wronged, they can forgive you. But until you actually turn towards them and accept the forgiveness, 
and seek to restore the relationship, then the relationship can't be fixed, can it? Similarly, if someone has wronged you and maybe they have repented, tried to turn back, and by the way, in Hebrew, the word repent is just to turn around, to turn back towards you, and you don't forgive them, again, the relationship can't be restored. And this is the other part of this picture. Forgiveness on the one hand, God offers forgiveness to everyone. That's the message of the cross. Repentance, the turning back towards God and seeking to accept, one, the gift of of forgiveness, and two, to accept responsibility and to seek to want to live as a child of God. In other words, to restore the relationship, that's the other part of the equation. Forgiveness and repentance are not the same thing. And yet often we confuse them. But in our lives, we need to recognise that we don't need more forgiveness. We have all the forgiveness we ever need. Sometimes we do need to repent. And sometimes, you know, there's that first repentance where we recognise that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And we turn to him and we accept him into our lives. But then there's the ongoing journey for all of us because none of us, as we said, are perfect this side of eternity. There's the ongoing journey for all of us when we do wrong to turn around and say to the Father, I've done wrong. I want to sort it out. You actually, I don't know if you've ever done this, but I challenge you to read scripture and look for these two elements of how what Jesus has done is there. It's both the the guilt of sin and the shame of sin is in our scriptures, but often we can can miss it. We don't need to be ashamed towards God. We can be shamed of what we've done, But the forgiveness is there if we will turn to him. Because in Christ, there is full forgiveness. So the next question is, so what? It's always a very helpful question, so what? Well, the first one's pretty obvious, really, is get right with God. You know, forgiveness is there for all the wrongs we might have done and all actually we might do. It is already there through the cross, as we have just remembered. Your response is repentance and to follow the journey of discipleship. In discipleship, you know, I, like, I grew up in a trades household. I think of it like apprenticeship. Learn to follow the master, follow his ways. As Donna shared, Be the best you you can be. Don't try and be someone else. We've got another one of those at least. Be the best you you can be. And that's a journey you'll continue for hopefully the rest of your life. You know, ministry isn't standing here. Ministry is being who Christ has created you to be, who the Holy Spirit enables you to be, who the Father calls you to be, and do that wherever you are, whatever you are doing. Yeah. 
The church is not the building. The church is the people of God being the people of God wherever they are. That means bringing something of the kingdom of God wherever you are. So you don't have to be the best preacher, teacher, evangelist. You have to be the best whoever you are. There are lots of things I am absolutely abysmal at and I should never be allowed to do. Children's church would be one of those. Um, yes, I'm a parent, but please, okay. Get, I did all right with my kids, but other people's kids, yeah, don't trust me. You know, um, When they're about year 12, I'm happy. I can relate to them then. Um, you know, that's just me. And similarly, you'll be shaped differently. Turn to God, repent of your sins, and then seek to follow him with all your heart. You will fall down. But remember, forgiveness is there. If you will deal with the shame and guilt of the sin, turn around, turn back to Christ, and keep following him. One of the great things I like about the stories of the Gospels and the whole stories in the Old Testament is we see people who are really flawed, you know, who actually do really great things. You know, Paul, a persecutor of the church, a murderer, becomes one of the greatest thinkers and planters of churches in the first century. Peter, who actually ends up denying Christ in fear for his life, becomes the pillar of the church. David, who's celebrated as the greatest king, is someone who commits adultery and then commits murder to try and hide the adultery. Abraham, the great father of the faith, laughs at God when he tells him he's going to have a child, uh, amongst also other trying to sell his wife off as his sister. So, oh, yeah, look, we, you get the idea. You don't have to be perfect for God to use you, you just have to be willing to walk the journey. So that's the first thing. Turn to God and keep turning to God. Second, use that same principle in your own life. If God chooses to forgive the wrongs you do, the hard work is going to be forgiving other people the wrongs they do to you. It is attractive and seductive to hold on to the power you have when someone has done something wrong to you. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but it's nice to have someone who's trying to grovel at your feet because they've done something wrong. It feels really good. <laughs> yeah, you ever been there? If you haven't yet, you will. Um, and what... The other thing is sometimes it's nice to hang on to the hurt. You know, maybe you're not the sort of person who likes the power you have over someone when you're being wronged, but sometimes people can like to be the victim. And, you know, you like to feel the downpressed, the downtrodden, the, the, the persecuted minority, whatever language you want to use there. The hardest thing to do is actually to choose to forgive. Notice the words I used, choose to forgive, because it is that choice. And sometimes it doesn't feel very nice. And sometimes we don't want to. 
That's why it's a choice. Don't wait to feel forgiveness welling up inside of you because generally it won't. It's something you choose to do so that the other person has the opportunity to restore the relationship. But that also shouldn't be the motivation for forgiving. You notice God forgave everyone knowing that not everyone would return and become part of the kingdom of God. In fact, knowing that most of the creation he loves wouldn't. And his heart breaks. How can we do any different? We shouldn't be offering forgiveness with the expectation that someone will turn, repent, and it will be all hunky-dory again. Maybe we can hope, but hope and expectations are two very different things. We can offer forgiveness hoping it will sort things out and the, the, the relationship will be restored. But if we expect it, then we're, we're playing games, by, you know, essentially. We're doing something, we're trying to manipulate and work the angles. And there's no longer forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't have strings attached. It doesn't have expectations of the other person's behaviour. Because, again, that's not forgiveness. You're asking them to do something to earn your forgiveness. It's back to works again, rather than the gift of forgiveness. This sounds really simple, and it is. But let me tell you, this is really really hard and the more you've been hurt the harder this is you know there's a part of scripture that says confess your sins one to another i don't think it's about hanging out your dirty laundry you know why we're told to do that because doing things wrong particularly amongst the body of christ damages the body because the relationships get broken. It's like any family. You know, family, if you've got a family, most of us have got a family and there's some bits that aren't really working as well as it could. Um, you know, there's parts of my family that are broken. Um, I'm one of a number of children. There's one of, at the moment, we've got some hope, but there's been one of my brothers who's been disconnected from the rest of the family for quite a while. And, you know... It's one of those, if I had time to tell you the story, it's one of those things where those of us who were offended forgave 18 months ago. But the brother who did the wrong is so ashamed he can't come and say anything. You know, it's the emotions get in the way. Sometimes we have to just understand we'll feel ashamed or we'll feel angry or disappointed or whatever it is, but that's actually got nothing to do with whether we forgive or repent, depending on which side of the, the fence we're on. Sometimes it's acknowledge your emotions and do it anyway. So you know, I'm not saying forgive and forget. Remember, we, we dealt with that earlier. To forgive someone doesn't mean they didn't do something wrong because to forgive means there's a wrong to forgive, okay? Remember that. 
It's not as though nothing was done wrong, but it's that choice not to hold it against the person. If you are the person who has done a wrong, and particularly if you feel ashamed or guilty and you don't know how to deal with it, start is often a good place to to begin. And let me say, this is a place of vulnerability on both sides. Because if you choose to forgive someone, you risk them not responding. But that's not why you forgive. If you choose to try and approach someone to repent, to try and sort things out, you risk them not responding to it and rejecting it. But that's not why you do it either. And notice again, that's exactly the same place God puts himself in with us. So you've got some homework. And I don't know, Pastor Dex, maybe you want to build on this next week. You could. But I challenge you to think, okay, what broken relationships do I need to sort out, either through forgiveness or repentance? What wrongs do I need to sort out through forgiveness or repentance? That's the first part of your homework, to actually think about one. Pick one. Because you've probably got more than one, if you're anything like me. There's probably a little list you could make. Pick one. Don't necessarily pick the hardest one, by the way. Pick one that actually you can then do step two, which is take one step to doing something about it. Decide on one concrete thing you can do. Make a phone call. Go and visit someone. By the way, this stuff is easier face-to-face and harder. But text, email, Facebook, whatever, doesn't work as well. It's actually coming up to someone and saying, sorry, or I forgive you. Because they can't read the emotion the sincerity in a text, in a message. Phone call, bit better, because at least I can hear the tone of voice, but most of it's in our facial expression, our body language. So I give you a hint, try and do this sort of stuff face-to-face. It works much better, even though it's more confronting for you. So pick one. Don't pick the hardest one. Don't set yourself up for failure, all right? And then... Decide on one concrete step you can do. Now, here's the really challenging bit. Tell someone what you're going to do before you do it so that you can have someone, one, praying for you, encouraging you, supporting you, but also holding you accountable to whom you actually report back how it went. And it's not about success or failure. Because, as we said, it's two-sided. There's forgiveness and repentance. Whichever side you're on, whichever bit you need to do, you can't make the other person respond. So there's no... The restoring of relationship, the sorting things out, is the hope. But the goal is to do what you need to do to sort things out. 
So ask God, what's a good one to sort out? What's going to help me learn how to do this? And who can I ask to pray with me? You know, we're given these emotions, shame and guilt, to tell us something's broken. Something needs fixing. The process is to forgive or to repent. Simple, but not easy. But this is one way in which we can, as Dex read, be people who communicate the ministry of reconciliation by being people who seek to reconcile amongst those we are a part of, those who we need to reconcile with. Because people want to know why we do it differently. Because our society doesn't seek to reconcile. You look at popular culture. It's not about forgiveness. It's not about repentance. It's about the strongest wins. You know, um, vengeance is the model of our society. The model of the kingdom of God is forgiveness and repentance. Let's work on showing that part of the kingdom in our lives this week. All right, can you pray with me? Lord, so simple yet so difficult to try and sort out when we've done wrong or we've been wronged. Lord, I pray for all of us, your spirit will speak to us about what we need to do and what we are able to do. Lord, help us to be people who communicate who you are just by the fact that we attempt to show what it means to be people of reconciliation. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.